This is the PropTech VC Podcast. We give you unique insights into how innovative technologies are disrupting real estate. We interview top entrepreneurs, investors, and knowledgeable experts to share the inside scoop in this fast-moving industry. It's hosted by leading PropTech VC, Zane Jaffer. Let's dive into today's content. Always evolving, and this is why I said earlier too, try to learn what the priorities are for the people at the other side. You, hopefully the company's organized enough where the priorities are clear. And so the priority should trickle down when it comes to how goals are set from a company, right? So the CEO's goals trickle down to the executive team, which trickle down to the you know VPs or whatever, and eventually to the front level people, right? Once you start to go beyond how is my product being used and you start to focus on what are your problems, what are your strategic priorities, then you realize, okay, this is a really strategic priority for this company. Their competitor has the same strategic priority. Ah, okay, now I'm playing chess. Now I'm thinking beyond what product features exist. I'm thinking more about, wow, these guys really are trying to solve a bigger problem. And I actually think this is an expansion opportunity for us. It matches our vision. Eventually I did this. I'll give you one quick anecdote, right? We were trying to diversify our revenues as an ad platform beyond iOS being at the mercy of Apple. We also wanted more channels beyond Android and Google. So we partnered with Amazon and Microsoft and we knew that for them, building a third party developer ecosystem at that time was a priority. We worked on that to the point where I finally got a meeting with Satya Nadella, you know, the CEO of Microsoft. Yeah. And like, once you realize you're solving a problem and you're building a product and that product gets visibility in a company, suddenly you're not just a CRM tool. You're not just a data management platform. You are the way they run their business. You are the way they achieve their strategic priority. The world changes for you once you talk to customers in a different way. How did you go about doing that? Uh, out of curiosity. We we obviously had a, we, 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 we talked to big companies. We knew they wanted to get into the app space. We knew we wanted to build a product that would diversify us. And, you know, we're thinking, how do we grow beyond iOS and Android? And so Amazon and Microsoft, and candidly, like they were potential acquirers for us too, right? I mean, big companies. Yeah. Um, and so you figure, okay, we're, we're hearing that they want to develop a developer ecosystem. Hmm. Let's talk to them. Let's let's try to see what they're doing. Okay, this is a real strategic priority. Oh wow, this SVP, his neck is on the line because this guy's being tasked with de- building a developer ecosystem. Well, you know what? Why don't we come in and help them? Open, we yeah, sat yeah. down with us. How can we help you? In the end, it turned into okay. You invest. Uh, you invest into this initiative, and all types of things happen here. By the way, this is how you do corporate development. Okay, if you want to get your company acquired, or you want good, um, you know, acquisition opportunities, you need to develop a corporate development arm or initiative, where you will partner with large companies and you'll build strategic projects. That you know, and this is tough because it might not be a long-term thing for your company, like the strategic project. But hey, if that strategic project can make a difference for the acquirer, right? Um, interesting. I mean, it might not even turn into an acquisition. We had a discussion, and it's far, far along in the past, so I wouldn't say like it's confidential. You know, it's 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 moot. It's irrelevant, right? But we had conversations around some of these large companies investing in our company, being part of our next growth round. You know, um, so that 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 that's uh, that, that's how we did it. We eventually got. We eventually took a lot of money in um, sort of co-development, right? They would subsidize our development. We used all of um, the resources Microsoft and Amazon both had, and we were piggybacking on the sales channels. We were invited on stage at conferences. Amazing. And that's yeah. because 
we were pitching our company as it is. We were pitching our company as the solution to a strategic strategic problem. Yeah, that, that's um, funny you say that because we, we're we're going through a, a pilot right now, and you know we basically say, look, whoever's the the core, not even this is not even a decision maker thing. This is a who is feeling who is under the pressure to solve this problem, right? And who is experiencing it the most? Like we're like we need to do anything and everything. Going back to the do what doesn't scale thing. If, if we can buy this person groceries and deliver them to the house, and that you know makes their life better, so that they can more effectively do their job, then that's what we need to do, right? Because we need yeah. we need to make his life or her life better, um, so that they love our product, that we're a key part of the way they now work, right? That that they just can't operate without us. Um, that's what. Like we're, that's what we're living and breathing right now. Um, so it's interesting to see that, that that you know sort of holds true. You know, Roger, I'm not, in an earlier segment, we were talking about not being distracted, focusing on a core problem, right? Um, this isn't distraction. This is product yeah. development. When you're asking what someone's problems are, what their strategic priorities are, and then you're seeing that resonate across different client bases and you go build that out, that's how you run a company. That's how you do product development. Yeah, the yeah. problem I have, and the reason I was trying to scare everyone earlier in the earlier segment where we talked about, you know, how 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 you shouldn't add feature or top of feature and how it can blow up the code base is because if you're just doing this based on what you think is needed and you're not, you know, you don't have a core yet and you're just fumbling together trying to hack something together that's just like... How many times have I heard? I I once fell victim to this. I almost launched a startup and I was like, okay, I'm gonna be like Google with Facebook with Clubhouse combined. Like, no, 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 no. Just just do one thing really well. Once you do that one thing really well, then add another thing on top. But make sure that you've got customers that are willing to to buy that, you know, and and use yeah. that. Then. Well, I then think. That's okay. Oh, sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's what I'm saying. Then that's okay. Once you do that. Yeah, I think to that point, like if you think about um, no matter what you're selling, like no matter what you're selling, right? At this, at the end of the day, someone has to have a problem that you are trying to either solve or make their life simpler, right? Or easier in some, in some way, right? Yeah, so awesome. you can talk about the fact that you have features, you know, uh, X, Y, and Z, right? But in order for them to even experience problems X, Y, and Z, they need to get past problems A, B, and C, right? Huh. Because, well, I think about, so think about term sheet, right? Like our whole vision is this sort of data management platform, right? Like the idea that you, you have deal, you know, in real estate teams across the board have all this disparate data, right? Whether they've collected it themselves, whether they're consuming it from other places, um, whether it's spreadsheet, you know, whatever it is that they, that they're maintaining, and they don't, they know they want to do something with it, but they don't really know how, what, why, how, how to get started. So, so that's like again, sort of our our vision of the the I talk about the data journey, right? Like where we think companies will get to. Everyone's in a different um, step on that journey, but oftentimes when we talk to to teams, it's like, okay, that's cool. Like I know I want to use my data, but realistically, like I'm just trying to like manage my deals right now. You know what I mean? Like I'm just trying to make some sense out of the chaos that goes on on my deal team when my managing director asks me, well, what's the status on these 10 deals? Or 
or has this offer been accepted or where's the file that I, you know, the LOI that I wrote for, for X, Y, and Z, you know, that's the problem that they're facing today, right? So our belief is, is if we can help them solve that problem, right? And that eventually they'll be able to begin asking the questions. Okay, great. Like I have all this data, either I've collected from my own deals or I've done research on that, that they can then leverage to inform their decisions, but they know they want to get there. They just, they're not even going to be able to get there unless they can just get out of the chaos of daily work. You know, that, that's somewhat enlightening, isn't it? When you realize your product is solving so many key problems that it, it that they can improve their workflow so much more now by using a solution that there's even more things they can do, you know? Before they were complaining, I have no shelter. Now they're complaining I'm bored and I want, you know, I, I want to have some entertainment, right? See the difference there, right? Different degrees yeah. of problems. And, and I think it's, it's very enlightening, I said, because if you have a, a customer that doesn't use your product yet and you're seeing how they operate and you're like, wow, you know, the problems they have are so ancient People that use our products have different problems. They're, they're now asking for, to do more with it. They're asking to operate at a higher level. Yeah. This is when it becomes like a, don't want to use war analogies, but like a, or religious analogies, but it's like a crusade. You know, it feels like a, a holy type of like mission that you have. And you need to convince your sales team. Like your sales team isn't just selling something. They feel like, oh my God, this customer needs this. It's like we're the medics, we're coming on scene, yeah, coming with right. our technology solution to make their life easier. Once you convince your sales team that look, and this is why internally you should always have case studies and show your, 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 your company. Look, this customer used us. This is how they operated before. This is how they operate now. Look at the questions they're asking. Look at the business decisions they're making. Look how much more revenue they can make. Look at the feature requests they have. Now, yeah. when you go onto the field and you're dealing with these other customers who don't know what we do, just imagine how much of a duty you have to help them. They're struggling. Yeah. Once your sales team acts like that, it's, you can never motivate them with commission. You can never motivate them with salaries, right? They can be motivated with you know, teamwork and recognition, but that inspiration, that impact, is what will motivate them to be like, no, no, I, I Mr. Customer, you really need to listen to me. Like, you know, that, that's why they'll knock on the door and they'll get that sale for you. So yeah. it's exciting when you have a product that can even do that, you know? Yeah, it is exciting. And it's, it's exciting that we feel like we're, we can, it's like, like you said, we call it a journey. You know, you can use the, the, the crusade. Um, it, like but the it, journey, <laughs> yeah, 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 no one dies in a journey, I guess. <laughs> um, but, you know, the idea that, uh, you, you, you know where you want to get to, here are the steps that we're going to take you through to get there, right? Um, and that's really, that's, that's, what, that's the vision. Now, you know, part of that is, okay, well, we don't really know exactly the end of the journey, uh, but we, we believe that by doing these things along the way, that the, this vision or this dream of data-informed real estate investing or buying or whatever that acquisitions can become more of a reality than it, it has been to date, right? So let's dive into this. 
What is data-driven real, invest, real estate investing? What, what's happening now? How are funds and real estate investors managing themselves now? And how should they be doing it? Walk us through the problem and then sort of where you end up and what the solution looks like. Yeah, I think, I don't, I don't know about you, but as long, as long as I've been in this space, you know, the way real estate investing has been done, even at, like I said, billion plus AUM funds, has been generally driven by gut, right? And what happens is an uh, acquisitions person will under, like, you know, find a deal, underwrite it. If the, if the financials look good, then what they'll do is they'll use data to support the decision as opposed to inform the decision, right? Um, now, fundamentally, you're buying a, you know, a business, right? When you think about real estate property, you're buying a business and clearly the financials are important, right? But there's been this idea of, well, look, there's all this data out there. And traditionally it's been about third-party data. So if you think about companies like Placer AI or Unicast that are collecting foot traffic data, you combine that with, you know, uh, publicly available data sets like, you know, permits, um, employment data, um, you know, some, some might look at tree cover data, whatever the satellite imagery to, um, inform well not only at the property level but potentially at the market the submarket uh, and and bigger level to help identify um opportunities right that in my i think lots of companies are trying it and i think it's it's picking up a lot of steam but it's been a process that people have thought about for a long time it just hasn't happened it's all been gut and i said supported by or then you have these like what I think kind of worthless documents that are like, here's the 135 male population, you know, mile uh, population, like in any marketing piece of material, right? Like the macro level data that uh, is in the marketing brochure uh, that has been put together by a broker. Yeah. And so like, okay, well, what do I do with this? Like, okay, that's cool. But like, how does that make my desire to not buy or not buy? It's just like, almost like, the pages have to be filled out, so they might as well put some market data. And that's just the way it's been done. And what do you get in these brochures? You get pictures of the interiors, you get these maps, and you get these like pictures of the local amenities, and you have these really like data. No, I don't even know if people look at this data, but there's just data for the sake of there being data, right? Supporting stuff. Like you said, like here's the population, here's the income, and these are important, but they're, they're what did you say? Supporting rather than informing. Yeah, there's exactly. And so I think the, the, the dream, I think of most people is, is to say, I have these models, right, that, um, and I'm not talking about AVMs, you know, that's kind of thrown around a lot, but these models that, that can understand my business um, to one, help me decide whether a particular investment that comes across, opportunity that comes across my desk is even worth my digging in. That's one thing. And then two, models that potentially identify regions, whether it be a market or some market or, or smaller, of where I should be potentially looking, right? So um, screening and um, opportunity analysis is what you're saying? What you're saying? Yeah, exactly, screening. So we, we know, I mean, I won't say the names, but like there's companies both large and small who are 
you know, doing hiring data science teams. Like you, you see it across a lot of the space, like where they're hiring their own internal teams to build, you know, data lakes and data warehouses to collect all this data to which, um, to collect all this data to help build these types of models. I don't know yet if it has actually been successful, right? Like I know they're doing it. I know they're making investments in it. I don't know has that, you know, or, or if it hasn't been successful, what level has it been successful? I think at? most likely it won't be successful, by the way, because all of these businesses have a core and it's sort of a fear reactive move. It's much better yep. to use a third party expert um, unless there's complete board level, CEO level, complete company level alignment. And they're focusing on this as the only thing they do. They'll do it well. Otherwise, in most cases, people are just taking a job at a real estate company and you know they'll do better than they were previously, but it won't be transformative versus a specialized vendor. That's why I like investing in PropTech, by the way, right? Because there's focused startups that can solve strategic priorities for companies. Moving back to the customer problem, this is a market where there's a lot of froth now and people are getting a lot of FOMO when they bid on a property. When we bid on a property, we just don't understand how the hell did the winner pay what they paid. And I, I agree. <laughs> I'll tell you, I've spoken to many winners, okay? And here's frankly what it comes down to. Well, we have a lot of capital we need to deploy. We're sitting on a lot of dry powder and, you know, we had a few assumptions in our models. You know, we're assuming that the cap rate might be reduced when we sell the property. You're like, what? So you, in, in our models of Bluefield, like we assume the cap rate is going to be the same or it's going to go up, right? If you reduce the cap rate, one thing. Then the other thing, yeah, you know, and we have a few assumptions around the debt, around the interest rate. Well, wow. You know, if your interest rate assumptions are like this and the market moves and interest rates increase or the cap rates um, go up, you are so screwed, yeah. right? Um, it's not even about, and those those levers are so easy to model and the truth is most fund managers don't even look at those. All they look at is what's the IRR? How do we make this IRR be what we want it to be? And also there, there's changes happening too. Now it's not about, you know what, 20% gross IRR. Now it's, you know what, the market's changed. You know, our LPs want us to deploy capital. We'd be okay with a 10% IRR. And then it turns into, you know, we'd be okay with a 5% IRR. This is when there's danger happening. And so it's turning into fear-based decision-making. You've got models on the spreadsheet that um, are being fine-tuned and those levers are not very solid. And there isn't real data backing it up. You know, people aren't, also like gut instinct, this feels right. Let me call up my friend who's a broker. Okay, this broker said this. That's pretty good. It's yeah. ridiculous how decisions are being made. It's, it's absurd, isn't it? That's what. That's what. Like one. I think one of the things that we've seen, and one of our beliefs at TermSheet is, there are mountains and mountains of spreadsheets that are sitting in a folder somewhere that have a, a ton of valuable data, right? That yeah. that you don't have to pay for like you've already created it so our real belief is like we can help teams unlock that data so like when you do go look at a property and you say well um what are the average rents in a multifamily or what is the average you know asking cap rate or what is my average or you know tendency for you know a bid cap rate you can really begin to build um you know your own comps 
based off your own data. That's where we're seeing a ton of value from our platform is, is ingesting historical data from these groups so that when they go look at um, a deal, they might say, well, we've looked at 20 other deals, you know, within a mile radius of this particular property. What, how did we look at that deal? Where did it trade? What did we underwrite it at? What was the bid bid at? Um, to really more, more effectively inform the particular, you know, investment that you may be looking at. So that's where we believe we're sort of unlocking this internal data. So you're not necessarily always relying on um, some yeah, report or whatever. It's, or, and it's a data that is just fundamentally um, the right way to do it. You're, you're building on how you make decisions. You're, you're creating a decision framework in your own company or fund by making decisions appropriately, by looking at previous decisions. In any company, doing things like post-mortems and analyzing what went well, what didn't work well, and creating patterns is key. That doesn't seem to exist today in real estate. It's hustling from one deal to the next yeah. deal. It's not, is this the right deal for us? How does this compare to other deals we've looked at? Taking in external data, comparing it with internal data, and then making a decision that's right for you and yeah. you know, your fund's returns. Uh, but this is where real estate will eventually be. Eventually be. That's what that's what we believe too. Because the, the way it works today is they'll, the, the 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 acquisitions person will say, I I remember we looked at a deal two years ago down the street. Let me dig through my emails to pull up the OM right. Um, and so with a pla- you know with a platform like us or you know is it's like oh well you not only can you see that deal you can see the twenty other deals that you didn't look at but someone on your team looked at. Um, to really help better inform your decision making. So yeah, that, that's what we're Can you imagine about. that some other person isn't on the team anymore, they left, yeah. and, and now you don't even know what you don't even know. Whereas if you had the infrastructure in place, you're building business intelligence. This is, this is really one of those areas where for funds, um, it can be, uh, it can allow them to complete, compete like a, I don't want to say this. I used to say this, like, you know, having Blackstone level technology, even Blackstone doesn't have the best technology I've realized. Um, The industry is wide open. I I used to think when I first started out that, okay, these small funds need to compete with the big funds and need to have the same technology. No, don't don't make it complicated. Like no one's really using technology, it turns out, in in real estate. And if they are, it's so primitive compared to where it could be and should be. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and that's why when I said earlier, like the size of the company doesn't really matter. Like traditionally you think larger companies, enterprises would be more likely to have this. What we found the size is is is, is not necessarily correlative to their um, their tools or their desire for data. In fact, sometimes it's, it's the opposite, you know, where the larger funds have a, a bigger problem because now, you know, instead of looking at, you know, a hundred deals a year, they're looking at thousands of deals a year. And so, you know, but they're not doing anything with that data more than the guys looking at a hundred deals a year, you know? So any any final uh, thoughts to conclude on regarding where PropTech is heading and in, in your segment specifically, what does the future look like? And um, what concluding remarks do you have? Yeah, I mean, I think that honestly, like I think there's, too many opportunities in prop tech. Quite frankly, it's kind of hard. It's 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 hard as a as an entrepreneurial-minded person to look at all of the inefficiencies that exist in the space and not like 
bash your head against the wall and be like, gosh, we could solve that problem. We could solve that problem. We could solve that problem. As a VC, I want to invest in literally every startup that comes across. You know? <laughs> so it's, it's even harder as a VC because I'm seeing all the opportunities. What, what, what will your industry look like 10 years from now? How, how will funds operate? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that, you know, data is going to be a part of it. I don't think it's going to necessarily be like automated underwrite or I shouldn't say, you know, AVMs or anything like that. I think it'll be more data. Automated valuation models. Right. I think it automates exactly. So I think it'll, it will be that th there'll be more data points that will help teams be better informed, right? It's not necessarily that it's going to automatically happen like, oh, Pat, you know, it's more of like the data that's, like I said, that's being downloaded in spreadsheets and called together by acquisitions teams to sort of put together an IC memo uh, for Monday morning pipeline meetings will be more automated because the data will, um, you know, be in the right place at the right time, allow people to generate these reports so that, but it'd be like the right information that they need to be make better decisions. That's my belief. It's not going to replace their decisions. It'll just be more efficient to 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 get to that point. So a few quick yes or no questions, okay? Number yeah. one, if this is the future, will funds be smaller? Will there be less admin staff? <sighs> That's a good question. Um, Definitely less admin stuff. I mean, we're already seeing it, right? Like if you think about- Staff, I mean, like headcount's gonna be reduced. Oh, staff, staff, staff. It's the British oh, sure. Yes, yes, okay. yes. So headcount will be reduced. Will returns be increased for these types of funds? Yes. Okay, so doubling down on that comment. Um, does that mean that funds that don't use this will make lower returns? I think they'll just be more fun. These funds will be able to do more deals more quickly. Um, and so I think by, by doing that, they'll be able to more effectively deploy capital. Um, than... So won't prices increase if funds are really able to extract the value? Yeah, if, if you believe in like an efficient market, you know, then then yes. Because then I was going to say, well, actually, then shouldn't returns just equalize and be the same as the Yeah, I guess eventually they will. I mean, we're seeing it, right? Like the real winners. And this is how history has tended to repeat itself. Are the people that use the dumbest technologies possible to buy real estate and just hold it? Because real just estate goes up and up and up, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, it shouldn't, but it, it does, right? And um, although having said that, some real estate might go down a lot too, because people-, people. <laughs> Well, it depends when you're buying. Like if you're, like you said, your, your guys you're talking to, if they're buying it, you know, they, don't, they, they underwrite it based on some crazy assumptions um, that that historically have been true, then 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 you're going to get screwed. You know. So what it comes down to is this, right? The the dream scenario is: will there be like a hedge fund that's able to get so much scale by using data to buy real estate, and it means that no longer can our our listeners who want to break into real estate or our listeners who own real estate already can play anymore. Just like it's very hard for an individual trader. I mean, yeah. you can talk about Robin Hood and the stock manipulation that happens, sure. But the cards are stacked against you. You either have the technology, you become giant and you become big, or you don't. Aren't there gonna be barriers to entry eventually? Aren't the well, real estate funds gonna be bigger, bigger? It's happening, look at mobile home parks. That's a classic example. Historically, two years ago, you would not touch a mobile home park. I've, I've dug into these 
really deep. You couldn't one touch a mobile home park below an eight cap. Now you can't find one like above a six cap or above a six and a half cap. Well, why is that? It's because the institutional investors have come in and they've bought everything up. Their capital is cheaper, right? They can deploy it quicker. Um, so, but is there opportunity still in mobile home parks? Yeah, the, the where it exists is million dollar and below parks, right? That's where it exists. So my belief is that opportunities will still exist. They'll just be, they'll just be different. Think about now people are looking at um, Airbnb rentals, right? Because it's like, well, I can't buy an apartment building because it's a four cap. So I'll buy an Airbnb. Well, eventually there's going to be a fund that only invests in, while well, you're seeing it in these single, you know, uh, the single family rental, you know, SVR sort of funds, right? Like they're going to start gobbling all those up too. Yeah. So I think PropTech's going to hold a lot of promise. I think there'll be more data focused approaches. I think there will be, um, I actually think uh, real estate funds are going to be um, left behind if they don't adopt technology and the ones that adopt technology are going to get larger and larger and are going to basically have more and more scale and more and more data and I think prices are going to go up across the board no matter what yeah. happens with cap rates no matter what happens with um, interest rates inflation is real real estate values will increase and people will pay even more for real estate when they realize how valuable it is yeah. so on that note that was a positive note to end on thanks for coming on the show, on the show. thanks Zane I appreciate the time Good talking to you.